Hello there, beautiful people of the universe. How is everybody doing today? Welcome to Shine Brighter with Liz, a podcast on personal growth and lifestyle development. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Danielle Pujadas. First and foremost, I am so happy that you're here. It means everything to me that you decided to click on my podcast and listen to it. Honestly, you are in for an incredible treat. Today's episode broke my heart. It moved me in such a way When I found this person, I knew I wanted to sit down with him and have him on my show and really dive deep because these are the kind of stories that I want to help bring to light. My show is all about sitting down and speaking with people who I believe are lighthouses in the world. And Benjamin is exactly that. He is a lighthouse, a man of faith who has been convicted and has given his life to fight the cause of human sex trafficking. Guys, this is an incredible episode and you're in for such a journey. So I'm so excited to tell you a little bit about today's guest. His name is Benjamin Nolo. He is a filmmaker, again, who has given his life to help fight human sex trafficking. He is a man of faith. He has a production company called Magic Lantern Pictures, as well as Exodus Cry. He's doing a campaign right now against Pornhub called Trafficking Hub, as well as he has an incredible documentary called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. To give a little bit of context, I actually decided to watch Nefarious right before our interview and just really consume all of Benjamin's work. And guys, I was not in the right state of mind. I was crying the entire two hours of watching Nefarious. It was so heart touching and really moved me. But you know what? It was incredible to sit down and watch his film and then afterwards get to dive in and have a conversation with him about it. It was honestly such a treat, such a delight. And to be able to also spread the word of God and just our faith in the episode as well and how our faith has convicted us to do things such as give his life to human sex trafficking fighting as well as even me like creating a podcast and creating space and having this kind of community to be able to just spread light into so without further ado let's dive into this incredible episode amazing uh thank you so much ben for sitting down with me to chat on the podcast i'm super excited for today's topic and um yeah i'm excited to dive in with you absolutely thanks for having me yeah awesome awesome so for my audience that doesn't know who you are just let's tell them who you are uh where you're from and uh what were you like as a child and really what was your journey growing up okay so yeah uh I founded an organization in uh, 2007, 2008 called Exodus Cry to combat the global injustice of human trafficking. So that's that's what I'm giving my life to. And uh, there's also a strong um, emphasis on the filmmaking aspect of how we combat this issue. And uh, and so maybe we can get into that more. Um, Growing up, I grew up in Southern California. I was the youngest of four kids, so I felt growing up um, like my childhood was idyllic. I grew up with going to the beach and and having tons of place uh, space to to roam, to explore, to be a young boy, ride motorcycles, surf, all those things that that you know boys love to do uh, growing up. But I was fairly sheltered, you know, again, being the youngest of four children. And uh, when I was 11, I saw a movie called The Accused that was, it was about the rape of, uh, the gang rape of a woman named Cheryl Arroyo. It was a true story. And anyways, the the scene that depicted this gang rape, I had no idea what I was doing watching this movie at 11 years old. But anyhow, it, it was 
seeing that movie is really what awakened me to the presence of evil in the world. I always, I, I felt like I, in many ways I was raised by women because I had two older sisters. Uh, my parents had gotten divorced. So, so my mom, I lived with my mom and then my grandma was, you know, probably the biggest influence in my life. And so, you know, being awakened to the presence of evil in our world in context to uh, a scene that depicted the gang rape of, of a woman, there was something at that young age that I think was deposited into me. And uh, in terms of an identification with the suffering of women. And, um, but, you know, I, 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 at that age, I mean, I was like, what, is this like the first time that this has ever happened? I had no, yeah. no knowledge of how widespread this, you know, was. And so, um, so later in life, you know, when I found out about the issue of human trafficking for the first time, uh, the way that, that I describe my, my encounter and, and awakening to the issue of human trafficking is that the, the feelings that haunted me from that age of 11 concerning the, the awful injustice that could be perpetrated against a woman like that, um, all, all that emotion, I think that was like in my body, like came out and, and I, I was just, I was overwhelmed with grief in a way that, uh, you know, it, my heart was pierced with this injustice of human trafficking and, and sex trafficking in particular. So the only thing I knew to do at that time was to, to carry this burden before God in prayer. And two days later, I was a, a part of a team, a worship team at the International House of Prayer. And uh, Misty Edwards was the worship leader at that time. And we had a debriefing before this, this prayer meeting. And I told the team about this issue that I had just discovered myself. Now I was the expert on it two days later. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so we, we, that, that night we went out, we prayed. There was about 500 people in the room. And it just the burden of, of the Lord for this issue, I think was just deposited in the entire room. And we, we labored in intercession for two hours. And, um, and the next day we, there was one of the largest trafficking busts in history. And we felt like that was an exclamation point of God's zeal for this issue. And so, um, so that was the launching point for us to dive into this issue. Again, not knowing what the journey would look like, not even fully understanding the issue, but um, just, yeah, being introduced to it and, um, and then beginning a path towards combating it. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I was listening, obviously, to the podcast that you were in, um, the Nations podcast, and there were so many stories. I mean, I've literally wept all day just listening to these stories and obviously watching the film and then listening to the podcast. But um, there was one that really like touched me was, I mean, there were several, but um, I'll just name a few. The one that you told me about the girl that was your friend that she, you know, told you about her anniversary and she told you happy oh, yeah, birthday. Yeah. And mm -hmm. could yeah. you share that story? Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them just because I want my audience to hear those stories, but that's one that I would love for you to share. 
Yeah, I'll share a couple stories that I think help give context to my own kind of like personal journey into this issue. And also the way in which I believe that, that God is awakening people to this injustice um, because he has fierce jealousy for over the lives of people in our world that are being exploited. And, um, and you know, I truly believe that he invites us to partner with him and being his hands and feet in the world to bring about justice for the oppressed. And, you know, I know that much of Christianity comes with a lot of baggage, has been maligned in many ways and misrepresented, but there is a very core message um, in, in the Bible that Jesus himself proclaims as part of his mission statement when he begins his public ministry. And he said, you know, I have been anointed. Um, And at that point you go, okay, for what, you know, and and it could have been like, I I am anointed to, you know, uh, to explain all the political and religious debates of the day to tell people how to get to heaven to, you know, you think of all these things that that he could say. um, But he says, I was, I've been anointed to bring deliverance to the captives and heal the brokenhearted. And so there's this very central idea in scripture of a God, Jesus, who, who is, understands that our world is broken, understands that our world is hurting. And he goes, he goes, it's okay. You're broken. I've been anointed to come and bring healing and deliverance. And so, so that is kind of the, the, for us, like a very core conviction that I think really compels and motivates the work that we do. Um, but this, this first story that I want to share is um, one that is obviously very personal for me. But, but again, I think it issues forth something for the world, like for people to understand that, that God is calling forth a movement of abolition to come against the systems of oppression that seek to, to devour and exploit human life. And um, there's something that Albert Schweitzer said. He said... The tragedy of life is what dies inside a man while he lives. And, you know, a man, a woman, whatever it is. And, and for us, like that is, I think, one of the, the biggest um, realms of, of injustice, of um, heartbreak, of um, grief that we have been stricken with related to this issue is seeing in the eyes and in, in the lives of people that it's not just that they've been taken or oppressed or exploited. It's that they've been exploited to a point where the inner man dies and, um, and you, you actually see that despair in their eyes. And, um, and so, so the good news is God is calling forth a movement of abolition to fight, um, for the, the, you know, the bodies and the souls and the, and the freedom and deliverance and healing of these people. Yeah. So, so this, so what happens is, so February 3rd, 2007, I find out about this issue of human trafficking. Later, I had gone up to um, a church in Northern California to, um, to do some, some teaching and on this issue. And, and we were meeting together with a group of their leaders and uh, it was the first day of meetings. I just gotten in, I sit down, there's a another uh, survivor of human trafficking would become a friend of mine. She's there and, um, and it's her birthday. So I say to her happy birthday and all that. 
And, uh, and, and, but she, her, her response caught me off guard. She said, happy birthday to you. And, um, and I was like, Oh no, no, my birthday's in November. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I was like, I'm November 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, she goes, uh, um, she goes, no, no, no. She goes, today is your birthday of when you first found out about human trafficking. I go, wait a minute, today's February 3rd. I go, oh, yeah, you're right. It is, you know, that, that I go, wow, that's so strange. That's, uh, I go, but how did you know that? And she goes, no, she goes, I never forgot it. She goes, because I heard you say it in a message once. And she goes, it always stuck with me. She goes, because in February 3rd, 2007, I was in prison because I wouldn't testify against my trafficker. She goes, because I was afraid that he would kill my son if I testified against him. So she's doing prison time, having been involved in this trafficking ring and, and you know, being prostituted out against her will. Um, she goes, on that day, February 3rd, 2007, I was in prison. She goes, and I got down on my knees and I prayed that God would raise somebody up who would expose what's really going on with this injustice of human trafficking. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. I go, my head was just like, I'm like, what meaneth thou this? <laughs> Is, it like, I? Is it I? Is it I? It's one of those very strange things in life where when you begin to just say yes to God in yeah. the simplicity of you know, the small choices and you don't think much of it. And oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I oftentimes I, I find myself relating to God as though he were a deist God, as though he were distant in the cosmos. So he's yeah. not really concerned with the intimate details of my life. And, and, um, but moments that like that, just, just bring everything into synchronicity where I'm like, well, I, I was just you know, bumbling about, you know, my normal like the old me, like just doing my life and 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 thinking I'm, you know, in my weakness and brokenness, trying to say yes and trying to sit here and there. And then all of a sudden there's these moments of convergence where the whole providential picture opens up and we can see like, whoa, like um it's like it says in uh, Ephesians 2 where it says we are God's workmanship. And, and that, that, that word workmanship is poema in the Greek, and it means poem. And, and it just, it illuminates this idea that, that as we say yes to God, that his hands, he is forming and fashioning and shaping our lives for a purpose. Yes. And, um, and just that picture of the potter shaping the clay. And, um, and it was one of those moments for me where I go, okay, so you're in prison. Let me go. I go let me get this, get this straight. I go, you're in prison because you won't testify against your trafficking. You get on your knees, you pray that as your gift, that your God would raise somebody up who would expose this evil injustice of human trafficking. She goes, yeah. I go, okay, so February 3rd, 2007, I'm out bumbling about, and somebody begins to share with me this whole issue of human trafficking that becomes the catalyst to launch it. I just, it just blew my mind. And, but in that, was it was such a... You know, I found out about this years later, and it's, it's interesting how, how God will sow a seed into our life and then allow it to be tested in the wilderness before going, no, it was me all along. So it was all these years later, and then, you know, it's like God like winks at me like, no, you, you have 
been do you have been in the center of my will and so there's this there i but i feel like it issued forth a a a resonance of, of a calling that, that god is commissioning right now in this hour human trafficking is one of the three major forces of evil currently holding the planet hostage and so while this story is very personal to me i think it speaks to um, what God is doing globally around the world. And he's inviting many people into this to become modern day abolitionists and, and to embrace that mantle of, you know, of Wilberforce, that mantle of abolition, you know, the mantle of Isaiah 61 and Luke 418, that idea of, of being anointed to set the captives free and heal the brokenhearted and open prison doors. And so we have, I have found myself kind of, you know, immersed into the swirl of that and there's times and seasons where we're in the trenches and, and we're just on the front lines and, and it's you know three years will go by and it's just like boom and then there's times where we step back and, and kind of like recalibrate and go okay like what you know so so i enjoy doing these podcasts because it's it's great for me sometimes to to pull back and just look at that big picture and and uh and realize you know what what god is doing in this hour right oh my god Yes. And you speak so poetically and it's so awesome when you speak with people who have passion, who have purpose, who have um, like God's hand over life. Obviously I believe everybody has God's hand over their life, but I don't think that everybody's open to hearing his voice. And sometimes I'll say like, I, I, I definitely have a lot of friends that are open to their voice and we can have conversations like this, but there's some people that I feel like a little bit more on the surface level and I can't really go that deep with them or have that conversation with them about God's voice. And I always pray to God to send me those, those people, right? Like those people who, who are attuned to his voice. And in my family, I'll say that I don't really feel like I have many people that, ha- that are attuned to that voice. So mm. when I first started walking in my, in my faith, which is, it's, 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 it's interesting because I've, I've, I've been a victim of both like child abuse and like sexual abuse, but the child abuse was with obviously my, my, my mom and my stepdad, right? Like they, they physically abused me as a child. Like, you know, like normal hitting is normal, but, the, but now as an adult looking back, you can see where it's like, it wasn't normal. Like it, mm. it wasn't normal, the excessive punishment, the excessive mm. um, mental games that they would play with us. Um, just the way that they treated us was very wrong. And, you know, my mom has, um, since then, especially I think because I speak about it so openly, even to her face where it's like, yeah, we were abused, you know, like I, I've, for, I've forgiven her, but I, 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 I do speak about it. And when I first spoke about it, you know, it was a lot of shame. Like, how dare I say that? And obviously as an actress, you know, I've used it in my plays and, you know, in my podcasts or in my YouTube, I've just shared, you know, this experience that I've had as a child. And I think really, uh, you know, you never really allow yourself to, you know, it's not about like being a, cause I don't want to be a victim of things that mm. have happened to me in the past, but it is something that has happened. And, um, I don't know, watching the film and then, and then going back to how it's like, I had an incident where a friend that, um, you know, just like violated my trust. And, you know, when you watch a film, like, like yours, it almost makes you feel like, well, I, I didn't have it that bad. You know what I mean? So mm. maybe I, maybe I wasn't, Mm. abused that bad or maybe because you start you start to kind of think well wow it could have been way worse you know what I mean like you start and 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 since mine was a child abuse I was like well I'm so glad I I didn't have to deal with that as an adult like my imprisonment was like as a kid 
And, and, you know, in this, in your, in your film, when at the end, when they talk about how Jesus came to them in dreams and I, I didn't grow up again, I didn't grow up with God or anything like that. I mean, my dad was Catholic and my grandmother was Catholic and they slowly sowed a couple of seeds in there. And I, you know, did communion and stuff. But when I was called, when, when God came to me, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll say like when I was, I was walking through a lot when I was a child, like, you know, my, I would say like, obviously like both my mom and my stepdad were very abusive, but they did this one specific punishment where, um, for some reason, the punishment that they decided to do was to cut all my hair off. And because they said that, um, they said that the only way that they could get me to, um, um, change was if they broke me where it hurt if they cut my hair off if they took my hygiene if they they took everything of mine and they put it in a box and um just the things that they would do to me you know what I mean and 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 the the words that they would say and and the and the physical like how they would hit me you know and um so I remember when I was walking through that um they had cut my hair and I think my hair and my beauty has always been a part of me because I think, um, I think it's, it's, as a woman, it's, it's one of your powers, Mm. um, to feel beautiful. Um, Mm. and I remember looking myself in the mirror and I had a walk-in mirror when I was, I'm in a walk-in closet when I was a little girl and I closed myself in the door and I, I was broken. I was broken because I never felt safe. You know, I was, I was, I was being broken by the two people that are supposed to love you. And, you know, my dad wasn't nearby because my dad was, I would say more of a, I don't want to say the word coward because that's a really mean word, but my dad just, he didn't know how to be there for us. You know what I mean? Because our divorce was so bad. My mom and my dad's divorce was so bad that he couldn't, he really just couldn't do anything. And, um, and I really needed him. I really needed him because Mm -hmm. I was facing these two big giants as a little girl. And I remember looking myself in the mirror and a voice came to me and it was like, have joy. It's something they can never take from you. Mm-hmm. And I remember leaving that closet and just having this utmost joy come upon my life. Mm-hmm. And I remember just skipping and dancing and just throwing myself into escapism of artistry of just saying, I'm going to be an actress and I love singing and I love dancing. And it was this joy that was festering in my soul. And I remember my stepdad saying to me, oh, you seem so happy. Maybe we should cut your hair shorter. Mm. And, you know, and it's so hard because as an adult, you know, I've have so many of those traumas that still like live inside of me. And I have to be around this human, you know, this, this Mm. person that was in my eyes, my abuser Mm. and my family doesn't understand why I don't want to have a relationship with him. And I'm like, I don't think you guys understand that as a little girl, this person was my abuser. And it's really hard to say that when your sister, that's her dad, or that's your mother's husband, or that's people's family member that you can't, you know, you can't say that, but it's my story. And I, and I get to say it. And I, and I don't think that anyone should ever take that away from you. And, and I just think that it is amazing how like God does come to your life and he, and he, just completely takes you on a journey. And I remember him coming to me in dreams and just 
you know, I had a dream where I was in a burning building and he came to me in like this magic carpet ride and he, he would talk to me. And now I feel like, you know, for a long time, just saying that I was Christian or going to a church and throwing my hands in the air and worshiping, like that was so weird for me because I felt like, mm-hmm. is this cultish? Like, what is this thing? Like, what is this, this church thing? And then getting made fun of by my family, like, oh, Liz is a Christian now. Do you think everyone's going to hell, Liz? Because, you know, you believe in God or, you know, sending somebody a sermon and then they're being like, oh, I just don't want to hear it because it's too much Jesus. And I'm like, mm-hmm but the message, the message is what I want you to hear. Like the message of why this pastor is talking about what a secure woman looks like. That's what I want you to hear. Not the story that he's saying about Ruth and like, like that's fine. Like don't look at the biblical like scripture if that freaks you out, but it's the message, you know? And I don't know. I just, I don't know why I felt like, like sharing that. Um, Well, I think, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing a bit of your own, personal story and I mean first of all I'm uh, I'm very sorry for yeah what you went yeah. through and endured and experienced as a child just that that betrayal of of your innocence as a child and um and I think the the offloaded shame and self-hatred and, and existential anguish of your own parents suffering onto you um you were you did not deserve that and uh and that was not yours to carry. And, um, and as a child, I think you don't even have the cognitive capacities to avoid internalizing that. And so it's a very, um, I think, common experience for people to, who have experienced those types of abuses to have to begin to unpack later in life the shame and the powerlessness that, that comes from an experience like that. And, um, and yeah, there's a, there's a unique, um, shame and powerlessness. I think that comes from child abuse and, and so, uh, so yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, I was going to say something about it, but I don't, I can't think about it, but I, I, yeah, I think, well, I think, I think having just seen Nefarious, I know you just watched that documentary, Nefarious. I think that um, it's, you know, it, it puts you in proximity. There's, there's a quote that I heard once that says that um, there are two things that pierce the human heart, tragedy and beauty. And, um, and, and Nefarious really captures both of those realities in a palpable way and also in a way that causes us to self-reflect on our own life and journey and in kind of like a grasping for answers, like, wow, like, because it, it just, it unlocks the heart. Yeah. And, um, and for those of us that have experienced um, trauma and abuse and exploitation and, and those feelings of, of shame and powerlessness and abuse, um, you know, I think that there does come a question of, you know, is God real and is he good? And, and, um, and, and so, um, so I think it's, it's, it's natural for us to, uh, to wrestle with that in relationship to the suffering in our world, to the brokenness in our world, and um, and to understand, you know, like God, where are you in this? Faith is not a uh, it's not a kind of black or white thing. I think it's something that is you know is a spectrum. People experience faith on a spectrum. And I think we all, as humans, 
struggle to understand our existence, you know, and, and I'm thankful for those interventions of God in my life that have instilled in me a deep faith and trust and hope because I don't think I would be able to face the injustice of human trafficking and even situations like what you experienced without that hope. And, um, and uh, just recently, this past week, I was listening to an old sermon from the pastor that, that I grew up, um, you know, going to church and uh, as a kid and, 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 and uh, as Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and, and he was literally days before he was, so he was, he was, had stage four cancer, was in the final stages of cancer. And he gave this message days before he died. And, um, and he tells the story and is the only time I've ever heard him. And he, you know, he, you know, he was a pastor for like 60 years or some, or longer, like 65 years. Like he was a, a, uh, oak of, of righteousness and just a pillar and, um, in the faith. And I've never, ever seen him get emotional, but he tells this story and he, he talks about how his brother, Paul had, um, asthma. And when, when he was a child, he had this, this memory of his mom rocking Paul when he would have these asthma attacks at night and just singing this chorus over him, Jesus never fails. And he, he's telling this story and he's getting like real emotional. And, um, and again, like he's got stage four cancer and he's saying this and I'm just, I'm like, only somebody who has lived a life like Chuck has could have stage four cancer and be sharing such a beautiful story about God's faithfulness. And um, so he tells the story, his mom is holding his brother and she, he says, it just meant this memory of her, of her singing this chorus over him. Jesus never fails over and over all through my childhood. So when later when she passed away, he said, um, I, uh, he said, I had written on her tombstone the phrase, Jesus never fails. He said, but then he said, sometime after my mother passed away, I was in the area where my grandma had lived. And I went to visit my grandmother's tombstone. And written on her tombstone was the phrase, Jesus never fails. And yeah, stuff like that just inspires my faith to know that amidst all this suffering and all this injustice, there's a temptation to buy into the lie that is really the accuser, the spirit of darkness that accuses God that says he's not good, he's not trustworthy, um, and just do it your own way. And, um, and I, just, I think that that lie is at the heart of our culture today. And it is, uh, there, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a question mark about where is God in the midst of, of this suffering? You know, but in my experiences, we have gone out and, um, and met the survivors of human trafficking. Uh, I, I would say, I mean, I can't think of one that hasn't had some profound supernatural experience in which Jesus visited them and encountered them in the midst of their suffering. And um, there was a, there was a, um, a dream that this uh, young woman had, um, Jennifer Toledo, and uh, it was a, it was a experience. It was a vision. She said, you know, like the apostle Paul, when he says like, whether I was in, 
the body or out of the body. I do not know, but I was, I was in the other place, you know, I was taken up and, uh, and she's in this, this heavenly mansion. And she said that it was very metaphorical. Like there was a, a room where there was like the spiritual library and people were filling their minds with the knowledge of God. And there was a, there was a, a wine cellar and, and people were becoming intoxicated in the presence of God. And, and um, she said, there was all these different rooms. She said, but then we went into the, it, Jesus was giving her a guided tour of this, this father's house. And she said, and we went into the room called the intimacy chamber. And she said, it was the most beautiful ornate room of the entire house. And she said, um, but but off in the corner, there was this wooden hatched doorway and it looked very unbecoming in this really ornate room. And she said that her curiosity was, was awakened. And she said, you know, what's in that room? And, and Jesus said, oh, he, she said, he said, well, that's the room where I spend most of my time. And he said, but, uh, but not many people will go in that room. And she said, you know, <laughs> at that point, she was, she, she was curious to know, like, well, well, what's in it? And so she asks him, can you take me into this other room? So he said, yes, but you have to get very low to get through the door. So they, he opens this wooden hatch doorway. They climb down a sti- spiral staircase to a small room. And she said, it was just a small room with windows all around and a single chair. And she goes, um, she goes, I, she goes, um, as we, as we came down into this room, Jesus said, he said, this is where I spend most of my time. This room is called the weeping room. And she said, um, she said, as you looked out these windows, she said, you could see every injustice. You could hear the groaning of the prisoner. You could hear the screams of those who were being raped. She said, you could hear and see every injustice all at once. And she said, this beautiful king took his seat in that chair. And she said, he began to weep. And she said, he stayed there for hours and hours and hours. She said, I couldn't even uh, remember how long the time we were there in that room for. She said, but uh, she said, but I began to weep. And I just, she said, I wasn't just weeping because of the injustice of things that were being done in the world. She said, but I began to weep because of this beautiful king who had spent his time in that place. And I have come to discover God as a God of deep compassion. And I think it's at the heart of all of this. Compassion, empathy, disrupts exploitation. And, um, and I think that, you know, the, the injustice that permeates our world is a lack uh, from a fundamental lack of empathy. But I have come to, to encounter God as a God of empathy. So it's experiences like this, you know, that I think for me deeply root and ground me in the mission that we're pursuing and a faith that when things don't make sense, when I can't, I can't wrap my mind around this level of suffering, that I can know that to, not to lean on my own understanding but to trust in him. And I've seen him uh, come through time and time and time again in situations where it seemed like, you know, there, it was hopeless. And so that's the hope for me in, in all of this. And, and I think um, for you, you know, just thinking of your own personal story, um, it's easy to, 
for your faith to be damaged when your your innocence has been betrayed by you know those that you're supposed to trust and um and it's hard to trust again it's interesting the thing that you said about the joy because i literally just posted yesterday on instagram a picture of my son with the caption joy is a guardian of our soul yeah. and um we need it we need to have we need to you know, to remember joy in in the midst of suffering. And so that's, that's why I say, you know, the two things that pierce the human heart, tragedy and beauty. It's like, in as much as it's really important for us to connect with the tragedy and the suffering of our world and to, to experience empathy related to that, like to weep in our hearts before we talk with our mouths. Um, And I think it's equally important that we see the beauty of what God is doing in the midst of, in a way that lifts our spirit and and guards our soul with joy so that we don't fall into despair. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you for that. Wow. I'm just like, I'm I'm so like, I'm just so moved. Um, I'll say um, just thank you for that. And I, um, I think I had like a, so I'm, I'm only 25 years old and I've only been, a Christian for like three years, I'd say uh, Easter is my anniversary. It's like kind of when I remind myself of when I first started going to church and when I, um, you know, got baptized again and all of that. And so I think this is my third anniversary of being Uh a Christian. And um, I, uh, I always threw myself into service. I would say, um, I I would say I, 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 when I first started walking in my faith and I, and I live in New York and I go to Hillsong and um, I, I started deciding like God was, God has, God was telling me that, you know, he wanted me to, um, to rise up as this, as this leader and that I was going to be doing a lot of things in the church. And like, these are the things that the messages I would hear when I was at church. And, um, he's like, I really want you to, um, start getting into community, Elizabeth. Like, I really want you to start serving. And I was like, okay. And so I decided I was going to, um, be, I was going to serve with city hope. And so City Hope, what they are is they're, 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 connect, they're a service team that what they do is they, um, they go out into the community and pretty much bring hope, right? And so they did, the first day that I served with them was on a Wednesday and it's supposed to be the street team. They're supposed to take food to homeless people and kind of just, you know, give them food, give them things that they need, pray over them and kind of let them know, like, you know, about the shelters and things like that. But this Wednesday in particular was going to be a day where we were just going to play games with um, like a pretty much like a halfway house kind of thing. Um, and I was like excited. I was excited. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I was, I just knew that God was telling me, you know, I, I feel very close to the homeless community in New York. Like I, every time I pass them, I always feel like God's telling me like one day you're going to help them. I just, I'm not there financially yet. Like I, I'm always asking like, how can I help? Like, how can I help these people? Like, I just, I just, those are the kind of things that keep me up at night. Like, I just want to know, like if there's houses right now that are vacant, why are there people on the streets? Like, I just don't understand. Like that's the way my mind works. And mm. so I was like, I just want to, you know, serve these people. And so when I got there, I was really excited. And I think innocently, um, you know, going into it, I felt like, you know, I'm a light, I can help, you know, I can just talk to people and they're going to feel great. And, um, I, you know, during prayer, they just told us, you know, um, we all prayed before going into the room to play games with them. They just told us, you know, be mindful, like, you know, not everybody's going to be happy that you're here and just kind of 
giving us this like harsh reality, you know, keep your things close by, you know, things. And um, so we went in and we, we started playing and I got this overwhelming anxiety come over me because I realized how sheltered I am, how mm-hmm. privileged I am that I don't put myself in situations where I don't see these things. And mm-hmm. so I started seeing people like, you know, like this one girl that you could tell that she's done crack and she has her pimp here in the halfway house. And you have the people that are like, just like, like spazzing out because they're not on drugs or there's just a lot going on. And then you have this one girl that she's just sitting in the back and I want to talk to her. And she doesn't want to talk to me. She's mad that I'm there. And just a bunch of us, like just Christian people, like just volunteering, ready to just sit down and play games with you. And, you know, I was just trying, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And I started looking for my leaders to kind of see like, what are they doing? Because they've done this and they weren't taking it so seriously. And I realized I was trying to make this, make it this mission and they were just having a good time. Mm. So I was like, I can't sit here with the girl that doesn't want to talk to me and try to change her mind and let me get through to her. I have to go be with the people that are open and just, that's what I started feeling. And I just, at the end of that, like I started playing, you know, Uno. And then I went and I sat down with this one young man and uh, we start playing a game and, you know, he starts talking to me and I, and I, and I just start hearing out a story and I ask him like, Oh, you know, how long have you been in these, you know, these housings? And he goes, Oh, since I was like seven, I was like seven. He's like, yeah, like I've been in and out. Like, you know, my parents like didn't want me. So like, I would always come over here and then, you know, I would just start selling drugs and he starts telling me these, all these stories about gangs and how he knows all these stories about gangs and all of this stuff. And I'm just, you know, I'm like, wow, you're, you know, I'm just trying to speak life over him. I'm like, you're so smart. Like you should take these stories and maybe you can make a film out of it. Or maybe you can, you know, try to like encourage him with ideas of creativity. And, you know, we just start having a conversation. He tells me, oh yeah, tomorrow's my birthday. And I, I, my soul just like, my heart just like, like, got so tight because I thought, oh my God, it's your birthday and you're not going to be with your family. Like, I just mm-hmm. felt so guilty of how privileged I've been mm-hmm. that my birthdays, I get presents and I have all my friends and like, I've had amazing birthdays compared to mm-hmm. someone that's like, just like in a halfway house and mm-hmm. it just broke my heart. And I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Like how old are you? And he was my age and we just wow. had just different lives. And, you know, I, I was, you know, I was like, and then I, I felt like, you know, I should share a little bit of my story. You know, I told, I was like, you know, I've also been abused or things like that. And I kind of just started sharing, like, I get that. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and he's like, yeah, my parents always would get mad at me. And then I told him, I was like, you know, in the Bible it says that you should listen to your parents and, you know, and you should honor them. And, and sometimes, you know, I was like telling him, I know that our parents are trying to tell us this, but it's because they don't want us to hit that wall. And, and he was telling me he's thinking of maybe go spending time with his grandparents tomorrow, but mm. that they're not happy with him. And I go, why? He's like, oh, they don't like that. You know, I get involved in gangs. And I go, I was like, look, you know, having grandparents is like such a gift, you know, and, and, and you never know how long you have them. You should definitely go spend time with people that love you. And you can just tell that he was like, he, he was getting so emotional, like hearing me talk. And I was telling him like, you know, I was asking him, like, what's your dream? Like, what do you want to do for the world? Like, you know, and he was like, I don't know, maybe I want to be like a security guard at like a bar or something like that. And I started to try to encourage him of like maybe some other options and things like that. I was like, look, you're very smart. Like you're this, you're that. Like, 
And um, just telling him like, you know, there's so much you could do for your life. And I told him, look, just because you've been in this situation, just think of like who your kid is going to be, like who your son's going to be. Maybe you can encourage your son, you know, never to walk this path. Or maybe you can start telling other kids that were in your position, you know, like, and I told them I have, I've had cousins that were in gangs and that they've lost their lives. And, you know, I told them, you know, you don't know how maybe you can save some kid's life if you kind of just share your story with them. You could tell he was being so profoundly touched. And he said to me, damn, Liz, you're cool. Like, I always thought Christians were like uptight and, you know, perfect. But you're, you're changing my mind about Christians. And my heart was just like, I remember feeling so much fear being in this position of thinking I am so out of my comfort zone because I don't like being in places that I feel like I'm just out of my comfort zone. But I heard God tell me that I was a fighter and that my job was to now start putting myself on the line, not putting myself on the line where I'm actually going to get hurt, but putting myself out on the line where it's like, having these uncomfortable conversations mm. with people. Mm. But I'm not radically trying to preach gospel to you. I'm just trying yeah. to share light with you and love with yeah. you, you know? And um, I feel like that's so much of what you do. And I saw just the fact that you were like in Cambodia and like Thailand and these places and putting yourself in these positions where it's like, like, how did you feel when you were just like in Cambodia? Like, how did you feel when you were in these places? And I like love that one scene where you kind of like fight off a, a, a pedophile, like yeah. you fought one of those pedophiles. And I was just like, I don't know, like, how did you feel in those, in those situations and specifically like seeing those pedophiles and all that? Like, yeah, coming into, you know, a situation like that where, where you're surrounded by, by such deep brokenness and by surrounded by people who are in, you know, such dire, uh, situations in life, it, it can, I think for me, it, it, I know that is that, that those feeling, I felt powerless in those situations. And, and especially, you know, when, when you're in a country like Cambodia and there's so much corruption and, and you're surrounded by a situation where the, the, the exploitation that's happening around you is happening to children and, um, and, but um, I, I, I take I take a lot of courage from a passage uh, in which Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and what I love about this story is that there he he depicts a story in which there's a person, a lonely traveler, who is beaten, stripped naked, and left for dead, and um, and then there and then he talks about these these two characters that come along this road, and they were the religious leaders of the day. And they were the people who, you know, believed all the right things, had the right titles, um, all of this. And he says, they passed by on the other side of the road. And then he says, there was this certain Samaritan that came along. And that is the person who was insignificant, lived in the wrong part of town, believed the wrong things, you know, and, and all of that. And, and he says, this person's coming by, they see the person who's been beaten, stripped naked and left for dead. And this insignificant nobody who had the wrong doctrine and yada, yada, yada goes to that one. Now this is extremely offensive in the setting in which Jesus is telling it because 
they the, the Jewish people hated Samaritans and they thought they were, you know, half breed nitwit delusional heretics. And um, and so so Jesus is setting up a situation where it's the Samaritan who's going to be the hero of the story. The Samaritan goes to this person who has been beaten, stripped naked, and left for dead. Doesn't preach the gospel, doesn't you know, jam a bunch of Bible verses down their throat just goes to them, is present in the midst of their suffering. It says, actually says, has compassion, has compassion. This one identifies with the plight of this person who has experienced such tragedy, such injustice, and then ministers to them, oil pours oil in their wounds, takes this person to an inn, makes sure that they're taken care of. And then Jesus says, you know, which of these stories do you think depicts the, the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourself? And the, the, the answer is obvious. It says, so you go and do likewise. What I love about this story is that it takes the pressure off of having some kind of agenda when we go and talk. And, and for me, and, and it seems like maybe you felt that way a little bit going into this environment that I feel like, well, you know, maybe when I go out, I need to get people to believe the right things, or, you know, I, I've got to have some way to qualify my, my being in this environment as being ministry or, or being a good human. And that story takes the pressure off and it, and it empowers us to go into these situations and just to be present and in being present and beginning to identify with the suffering of others we will be led to give a person a gift on their birthday when they weren't going to receive one, you know, because they were disconnected from family and friends or, you know, in, in my situation in Cambodia, it was, you know, um, confronting a pedophile and chasing him out of town, <laughs> but it, it will have different manifestations, but uh, we don't have to go in with any other agenda except to love well. And, you know, and, and sometimes that expression of love looks like, just sitting and being present with somebody in their pain. And other times it does look like defending the weak and, and you know, rebuking the oppressor, so to speak. And um, I, I, I remember uh, when we were, I went undercover into the porn industry for a year to film a, do, a new documentary that's coming out this year, a docu-series that we did called Beyond Fantasy. Oh my God, I'm and, so uh, excited. Yeah, yeah. And uh and I, anyways, I, I, I interviewed this one young woman who was 18 years old. She had just joined the point industry, had been in for several months. And, um, and she was unpacking like all of these horror stories of things that had happened to her in the industry already. And, and she had gone into it because uh, she heard a story when she was like 12 or 13 years old. Uh, Jenna Jameson's, you know, glamour success story of, of being in porn and, um, and she said that inspired her thinking, this is how I'll achieve empowerment is going into the porn industry. Um, and, but she had been completely destroyed, mistreated, all this stuff. And, and so at the end of it, I really didn't even know like where to take the interview. And just this question came out of me. And I said, um, I said, you know, like, what is it that you really want in life? And and she was from New Jersey. So she was very like, you know, the whole time had this kind of exterior about her, like, and, um, and even to something that you said earlier, you know, I think for people that do 
suffer these kinds of things, they don't want to identify as a victim. And in our culture, we, we use the term victim in a pejorative way to associate it with something negative. But I think there's a big difference between somebody who has been victimized versus taking on the identity of a victim. There's a big difference between those things. Right. And, and, um, and so, but in her experience, not wanting to take on that identity of a victim had this kind of like thick exterior about her. So I said, you know, what is it that you really want in life? And she tried to like gather herself, like tears started welling up in her eyes. And, and, um, and she says, and she kind of like just broke. And she's like, I just want to be loved. And, um, and she kind of like, you know, talked through that for a few moments. And she's like, you know, no one has ever even brought me flowers. And, um, and so uh, two days later, we get a phone call from her and she's in the hospital from something that had happened in related to her performing in porn. And she called us because we were the only people that she felt like she could call. <laughs> I'm like, I just wow. met you like two days ago. I'm like, and like, but that, that's the kind of predatory industry that the porn industry is. Like she had to get a taxi to go to the hospital. And so, so, uh, so in that moment, we were able to buy her flowers and bring them to her in the hospital, you know? And, but the agenda, like, I think when people realize that you're an authentic human being and you're, you, you are interested in their good and you don't have any other agenda other than, you know, to love well. Uh, I think people are, are able to, to open up. And what I noticed is that with her, she was able in, in to cross this personal threshold of reclaiming her own dignity because everyone had related to her based on her sexuality. And, 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 and so it, it cast her into conforming into this sex object. And, um, and, you know, our sexuality is great. It's a part of who we are, but it's not the entirety of who we are. Absolutely. And, um, and so for us to be able to look past that and to, to access her humanity brought about a self-revelation in which she was able to cross a personal threshold and realize, no, I am human. And reclaim her dignity. And after that, it was like, like, I can't go back to porn. And she ended up like moving back to New Jersey. Like, I can't go back into a context of dehumanization after I've encountered the truth of my own humanity. Right. And so, um, so I love, you know, the story that you shared. And, and I think I, I resonate with that of just being able to, to take, let that pressure off of, of having to have some kind of agenda other than to love well and being having the courage to be willing to go into a situation you know where um, we can just be present with somebody and there's something powerful about being able to look into somebody's eyes and and to see their humanity that human to human connection um, in a culture that is so dehumanizing and, um, and so, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, two kind of things came into my mind. One being, um, how I first stumbled into you, which is so interesting how God like brings people together. And I, I've always, I've always known about human sex trafficking, but I'll say my little sister is way more of a, a social, um, like warrior. She's, she really knows about causes that are going on in the world. And um, she briefly mentioned it one day um, 
saying like, oh, you know, Miami has like really high human sex trafficking rates. And I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I started seeing like billboards, like, and like, uh, like trafficking and Hillsong does this huge walk every year with like X's on our mouths and things like that. I just wasn't aware of it. Um, but, um, when I walk home by myself, I always think to myself, Liz, be very aware of where you're walking. You know, you're walking up a a weird hill. Um, and I walk with almost like terrorizing panic because I'm like, what if a van pulls up and just like grabs you? Like, and then I started realizing like, this is actually a thing. Like, this is not just this crazy notion of paranoia. Like, no, this is actually a thing. And I got an email from, um, change.org. And I actually looked back at the email today and, um, that's when I first discovered you because it said, um, trafficking hub. And that's the first time I realized like what was going on. And so when I read the, the email about it saying how Pornhub has, you know, these victims is video on line. I was, I was completely shocked because this was completely new to me, a, a completely new idea to me. And um, then I became obsessed with figuring out more about that. I go, wait, is this actually like a thing? Like, what do you mean? And then I found you and on Instagram and and I just started kind of like looking at all of your content and, and listening to like, just looking at the videos and the things that you were posting. And, and that's why I was like, I, these are the kind of people I want to talk to. Like, these are, these are the conversations I want to have. Um, So what is, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the trafficking hub and, um, And even just to encourage some of our listeners to sign that petition, I went back and made sure that I signed it. I signed it again today. I shared it on Facebook and um, I'm definitely going to share it with my audience again, but can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Thanks for mentioning it. And, and I, I love how that campaign has like cross connected our paths. Um, So after we did nefarious, we did a follow-up film to that, that looks deeper at the sexual at the the underpinnings of our culture that fuel sexual exploitation, and um, and that film is called Liberated: The New Sexual Revolution, and that is available on Netflix. Um, and then after that, we started working on a documentary on the porn industry. So starting in 2012, I've been working on a documentary and a book about porn that addresses it from these two different angles: the human rights side of the human rights side of the equation, which deals with how porn is getting created. And so the human rights issues that are at work, the human rights crisis that, that exists inside the porn industry, how this content is getting made. Um, our documentary focuses on that issue and it's extremely compelling. It's what I liken it to is like some people, you know, cause, cause pornography is a very controversial issue in our culture and, there are people who, you know, promote it and, and say this is, you know, something great and can enhance your relationships. And there, there are people who are fundamentally against it. And, and for our part, we have really tried to frame the conversation around pornography as, as more of an ethical issue than, than and, 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 and looking specifically on like, okay, well, whether you agree or disagree with pornography generally, we should all care about how it's being created. And what I liken it to is, is chocolate because um, some people will say, you know, dark chocolate, you know, probably the people who like it say it's good for you, have a little dark chocolate every day. And then other people say, you know, no, the sugar's bad for you or whatever, you know. And, uh, but, but I think we can all agree that if it's being made by child slave labor, which most 
of the main chocolate brands are um, provably made by child slave labor in Africa. Oh, I did not know um, that. Then, then we can all agree, like, that's not good, you know? Yeah. And so, like, so I might not, I might not have a, you know, quote unquote, moral conviction or health conviction about consuming chocolate. But if it's being made by child slave labor, then that's something that I don't want to participate in, right. fuel in. And, and so we really took that angle with the porn thing to go like, look, regardless of how you feel about this, the way it's getting create, created is on a backdrop of systematic coercion and, um, and is deeply concerning. And so, um, so that is the direction that we took with this documentary. The book that we began to develop, um, this, uh, my colleague Lila, who is really spearheading this trafficking hub campaign, and I began to, to develop is called the Triple X Factor. That's coming out in a couple of months, and it deals with the public health side of pornography. So, so the, the impact of pornography on the consumer, on relationships, on society. And it's a very um, research-based uh, resource that is the most comprehensive um, analysis of pornography, I think, that's ever been done. And also that includes, it's a solutions-based approach to the problem the problem and the public health crisis of pornography. So it's both educational um, about the scope and impact of pornography and how to understand it in a systems level analysis, but also empowering from the standpoint of, of how you know, we can heal from some of its effects in, in our personal lives and our relationships and so on. Um, and um, so, so public health, human rights, well, what Lila discovered several months back in the fall of last year is the distribution side of pornography actually represents one of the most troubling aspects of this entire larger industry. And that is that the large tube sites, Pornhub being the most prominent and the most recognizable, don't have, uh, they don't have uh, any kind of effective means to verify age or consent of videos that are being to their site. So they take kind of like a YouTube model where anybody can upload content. Well, the problem is that they're not verifying the age or consent of people in the videos that are being uploaded to their site. And so there was a, there was a study done by the times. There was a study done by vice. There was a study done by the BBC, my own colleague, Lila, which has really been at the spearhead of this, did a deep dive investigative journal, kind of dive into discovering this this whole world of Pornhub and 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 the information now that's coming out is that there are dozens and dozens hundreds of stories verifiable cases of people who were victims of rape victims of child sex trafficking human trafficking who the the videos of the crimes being committed against them um, were on Pornhub and some of them for years with millions of views Jesus. And, um, and so it has, yeah, it has galvanized this, this whole kind of, uh, awakening about the reality of what Pornhub actually is and, and the content that's actually on it. And so it is infested with videos that are of people's actual sexual exploitation. Um, and, um, and so my colleague Lila started, um, a petition and uh 
and we started a new website called traffickinghub.com where we are where we basically tell the story there's a lot more detail to it that people can find on traffickinghub.com but um but yeah it's been picked up by well over 200 news outlets now we have more than 200 partner organizations that are partnered with us in a in this we're over 800,000 signatures now on the petition yeah. and we are we are making a push to hold Pornhub accountable for the um, and their executives accountable for abetting uh, and abetting human trafficking on their website and being complicit in profiting off of the exploitation of other people. And so, um, yeah, so we encourage people in, in, in signing and sharing the petition to go to traffickinghub.com. And just one other note that I'll make is that a lot of people have um, gone, when you go onto the actual petition that's through change.org, which you can access on traffickinghub.com, there are um, all kinds of donor prompts that pop up. And a lot of people have mistakenly donated um, those who go to change.org mistakenly donated change.org thinking that they were donating to our campaign. And I just want to, and, and, and so I just want to put that disclaimer out there that if people actually want to support this campaign to do it through the traffickinghub.com link, there's two links, one to sign the petition, one to, to contribute if people would be interested in that. But it is, uh, in 2012, we talked about dispatching this armada, um, against the, the porn industry, the, the kind of like larger impact of porn on our world. And, um, and so as, so what we, you know, what we've said in this year is that, uh, we are, we have the, the great porn wars of 2020 have begun and we amassing an army of people to participate in slaying this Goliath that has committed such egregious crimes. Wow. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. And I'm going to make sure I uh, reshare that again with the traffickinghub.com and with my audience yeah, and yeah. just on the podcast, I'll put it in the link below. So that way people can click on it and sign that's that right. petition and just get more involved. So now, cause I know that your company is called Exodus cry. So I know um, one of the stories that you shared on the nation's podcast is that you went to Canada, which I, which I found really interesting because when I first started listening to the podcast, what I started thinking was, what about Canada? I remember going to Canada one time and flipping the magazines in the back and seeing all this prostitution and my, my family being like, oh yeah, prostitution's legal here. And I thought that was super weird, like in my, in my eyes. And some of my, my family members jokingly were like, oh, but you know, that's awesome. Like it's women's body, like it's empowering. Like they should have that. The state should have that. Um, so can you talk about when you guys went to Canada and um, when they were trying to, what was it? They were trying to pretty much legalize brothels. Was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I can talk about that. Yeah, so um, so yeah, the way to uh, the way to understand how the battle lines are being drawn up right now um, over this issue of human trafficking have to do with kind of like two different views and definitions of prostitution, and then and then um, how. Their, how legislation is is guiding nations in dealing with this. And so on one hand, you have the abolition movement that is that is advocating for legislation that decriminalizes the individuals being sold for sex, predominantly women, but, but criminalizes and holds accountable the pimps, traffickers, Johns, etc. And um, and on the and so in countries like Sweden where this was first passed, we've seen that 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 this legislation, which is 
some refer to it as the Nordic model, some refer to it as the equality model, I refer to it as the abolition model. This has eradicated sex trafficking in Sweden. Um, on the other side of the equation, you have the quote-unquote pro-sex work movement that is funded largely by, um, by the Open Society Foundation, funded by George Soros, it's his foundation, and, and others, but it's a well-funded global movement pushing for a definition of prostitution that says this is sexually liberating, this is empowering, and if we just fully decriminalize it, including pimps, brothel owners, johns, etc., that all the all the harm that is inherent to this system of commercial of the commercial sex industry will magically be expunged, and you know it'll and uh, and so so these two movements are are really at odds. But the fact is, is you know anywhere where the sex industry has been expanded by mostly by virtue of the success of the pro sex work movement. I say success, but their push to 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 fully decriminalize anywhere where that has actually happened has increased trafficking and increased sexual exploitation. And so, uh, so Canada was in this, um, you know, they were, they were at this, they were in this place of wrestling with these issues and there was a big push to fully decriminalize prostitution in, um, in Canada. And so we went up there, we met with their parliament, we screened nefarious to them. They decided to, push pause on their plans to fully decriminalize prostitution where we would have seen all kinds of brothels popping up and, and um, they took a year. They said, we're going to look into this. They researched uh, our claims about the inherent harms of prostitution and, and, uh, and our view that prostitution is a system of violence, exploitation and gender inequality. And they came back a year later and, and all of their findings confirmed what we had shared with them and um, and so uh, they end up doing a 180 degree turn, passing the Nordic model. And um, and for us, you know, that is a very palpable victory over uh, this in this system of injustice. And so when we look out at the nations, we feel like the roadmap towards a path for freedom um, and towards a path for for justice is clear. That we we have to shift mindsets and pass this legislation that can eradicate sex trafficking. As abolitionists, we fundamentally reject the term sex work. Prostitution happens on the, the basis of um, a lack of desire. So, um, so we reject the term sex work, sex work because we don't believe that sex can be work. Sex and desire are, are uniquely and inextricably linked. And, um, and sex uh, without desire is violation and exploitation, regardless if somebody is getting paid for it. And so a better way to understand prostitution as paid co sexual coercion or paid sexual abuse. Um, if you have two people who come into a room, the John, the sex buyer, and the woman who's being sold for sex, he puts the money on the table and he says, you can take the money or leave, or you can stay for the sex. 10 times out of 10, she's going to take the money and leave. Why? Because she doesn't desire him. And she doesn't desire his fantasies. And she doesn't desire the man after him and the man after him and, his, and their strange fantasies, the, the 10 to 15 to 30 men a day. She doesn't desire them. By virtue of that, she experiences the sex as a form of sexual abuse. 
And um, so I think it's a very cynical and cruel notion that we would call this a job. I mean, what other job are the vast majority of people raped in the job? What other job is the, the, the experience of sexual harassment fundamental to the job? Um, what other job do 68% of the people experience um, PTSD and, and trauma? And so, so we abolitionists do not subscribe to the belief that sex can be work. We do not subscribe to the belief that this is a, a job like any other, that there's anything empowering about it. The entire sex industry exists um, as a construct of male demand. It is fundamentally one of the major pillars of inequality left in our world. And we would say, well, stop telling women what to, you know, they say, stop, don't tell women what to do with their bodies. They say that to us. And I'm like, it's, it's ironic because abolitionists are actually the ones telling pimps, traffickers, johns not to do with women's bodies. And we are advocating for the decriminalization of the women. And, and, and so, um, but anyhow, yeah, so, so, so the situation of prostitution itself is one in which the person is experiencing the sex as a form of sexual abuse because they don't desire. And by virtue of that has to dissociate. And so people will talk about, well, I don't let them kiss me or I don't let them touch my arm or, you know, these various things where they can house their humanity as they endure the experience of prostitution in order to survive that experience. And, um, but at the same time, having to fracture their humanity to endure it. And so, um, so the entire system, the entire system of prostitution, the entire global commercial sex industry is a system of violence, exploitation, and gender inequality. One of the most egregious manifestations of injustice in the commercial sex industry is sex trafficking. So, but it, it's a mistake to say that, that, you know, just this one area of sex trafficking, which really defines the way that somebody is brought into prostitution, other people are coerced into it by virtue of poverty, by virtue of statelessness, by virtue of other vulnerabilities, by being a part of a marginalized group, like being a, a Native um, American or, or, you know, some type of racial marginalization, poverty, um, and, uh, and, and they're brought into it in different ways. But when we, when we use this term, that, you know, just sex trafficking is what we care about. We're really defining out worthy versus unworthy victim. The fact is, is that regardless of how somebody got in the system, the entire system operates as a system of violence, exploitation, and gender inequality. So abolitionists stand against that. And we are fighting to shift mindsets and change laws around the world to eradicate this injustice. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I was going to say, um, what is sex trafficking, right? Like, so before I watched the documentary, I didn't really understand how the process works. So we say sex trafficking or human trafficking. And like, I don't think people understand the severity of how it actually happens. Like, um, you know, not, I know, cause it's definitely happening within the States, but also like, how is it happening in places like Cambodia or, um, Moldova. Yeah. So can you explain the process of, um, you know, I know in Cambodia, the parents are usually the ones that are giving their children up for sex work. Um, and then in Miladova, it's more of like, just because of poverty and because of the fact that they were orphans at what point and no one really cares for them and no one really knows what's happening. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a little bit just to people that are listening that don't really understand how does this happen? Um, mm -hmm. and how it's kind of happening in different places. 
And obviously I wouldn't just recommend them to watch your documentary, but can you just explain that to them that are listening and they're kind of just unaware of how does it even happen? So prostitution and, and sex trafficking really has to be understood in the larger context of our, our, of our world and the facilitating culture that we live in that is sending large demographics of, of the population into this, this system of violence and exploitation. But, but one, I think, important thing for people to understand about sex trafficking is that it has different faces in different parts of the world. And so what it looks like in Brazil is different than what it looks like in Vegas, is different than what it looks like in Tijuana, is different than what it looks like in Moldova, is different than what it looks like in Bangkok, and it's different than it looks like in um, Cambodia. And so, so there's different faces to trafficking. Um, Shared Hope International did a study, I believe it was Shared Hope International did a study in which they, they identified 25 faces of human trafficking. It's like the most common kind of faces of trafficking. So there's different faces of it around the world. Um, and then there are commonalities, uh, you know, as well. But yeah, like you mentioned, you know, in, in Moldova, there was a massive social orphan crisis um, in which uh, after the, the Iron Curtain of Communism fell, um, and, and people were employed through that system and, and kind of like given, uh, you know, jobs to do. Um, it was a country that was completely left to fend for themselves. And, and um, having been under kind of this, this system of tyrannical system of oppression, did not know how to fend for themselves. Like, and, and so what happened is, is that all the, the parents fled the country looking for work abroad. And there was a massive social orphan crisis in which 300,000 children were left behind. And um, that's a massive number in a country of, you know, 4 million people. And, um, and so these children were literally just left. Well, this was a trafficker's paradise. Um, organized crime came in and began to target these children. A lot of them were just outfending for themselves. Some of them were orphans. And, um, but... But trafficking, but traffickers learned how to target that vulnerability um, to capture these children and bring them into prostitution. So what we what we learned um, is that uh, that these children were being brought primarily through Belgrade, which they call the the breaking grounds, and they were being put up in apartments, um, which would be you know one apartment would be packed with a number of of young women. Um, 14, 16 years old, young Moldovans, and, and they would be what they call seasoned there to be used in prostitution. So they would be broken down, gang raped, um, all of these horrific things, and then be sold on um, through auctions, black market auctions and various means sold on to pimps and brothel owners and so on and so forth that would then be exploited in places like Amsterdam and Dubai and different places. And so, um, so you have source countries and then you have destination countries. And that kind of is the situation going on, generally speaking, in Europe. In Southeast Asia, there's more of a cultural phenomenon specifically tied to the way in which um, young girls are, are valued in that culture. And there's kind of a, a cultural complicity in the selling and exploiting of, of children. And um, uh, unfortunately, I don't have the, the time to fully unpack what's going on in Southeast Asia but um, like you pointed out, one of the, the most egregious aspects of what's going on there is the situation in, in some of these villages, predominantly Viet Vietnamese villages in Cambodia, um, but where, where parents are actually selling their children. And 
um, and some of the villages, you know, the number of parents selling their children is like 80 to 90%. And these, it, it makes it this situation very challenging because a John can come into town. He doesn't have to go to a brothel. A pimp can simply connect with him and then go to the parent's house, pay the parents, and then they take the child out and he goes with the John. It's, it's mind blowing at a level that is unfathomable. And, um, so anyways, uh, lots more to talk about and, uh, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can take yeah, a no, stab at it another time, but I love your heart and the deep dive that you've enabled us to, to do on this podcast today for the past couple hours. And, uh, hopefully it's valuable to your listeners. So oh, absolutely. Ben. Thank you so much. Where can the listeners connect with you? So the trafficking hub right now is our campaign against Pornhub, traffickinghub.com. And, um, and then our nonprofit organization, Exodus Cry, is exoduscry.com. Um, uh, people want to correct, connect with me directly. I'm on Instagram, Benji Nolo. And then we have our film production company called Magic Lantern Pictures. Yes. So, um, yeah, Magic Lantern Pictures, Trafficking Hub, Exodus Cry, Benji Nolo, any one of those. And, and, yes. you kind of like, and then they could check out the documentary on YouTube and then... Yeah. We just released Nefarious on YouTube, so that's great. It's our Exodus Cry YouTube channel, and the entire film is available there, as well as a bunch of other videos and resources. So, yes. yeah, so hopefully people can check that out as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate yeah, your time. And there you guys have it. That was my episode with Benjamin. Man, honestly, what a powerful conversation. Honestly, I so grateful to have it i was so grateful for the time that he really just broke everything down and unpacked everything guys i highly still recommend for you to go watch nefarious so you could really understand what it is that we're talking about in this conversation and yeah i would definitely go check out trafficking hub so you can go ahead and help out in any way that you can even just by signing the petition and um i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you learned something i hope you're leaving encouraged and really felt the message of God eh, pressed in our hearts and the way he shared his faith so beautifully. Um, it was it was an awesome episode and I'm really grateful I got to have it. Thank you so much again for listening to the episode. It really means so much. Please share it with a friend and just let them know, hey, I listened to this awesome episode on human sex trafficking. Leave a review and I will see you next week. Remember, keep on shining.